in thinking about, well, we, we do a lot of different, talking about different things up here. We spend a lot of time over the years, if I was to add it all up. So I was worried about, you know, the screen and everything. I guess that's going to work out well, was necessary. Huh? Hit X. It's, it's all because I'm using a Mac. And it's funny how you PC people try to convince me that your computer is good too by telling me, oh, it's just like a Mac. That convinces me yours is better. That's the right way to convince me yours is better. Anyway, I've been through this for 30 years. I'm not arguing, but yes, uh, I don't know who caused this. I don't know which one of you we should throw overboard. But in any event, I don't pay any bills. I just freeload along. And guess what is still operational? Just so, just so you know, as they say, still operational. Anyway, the worst thing is going to be in about 30 minutes when it's hot in here. So brace yourselves, which means I'll probably need to get going here on this sermon. In any event, we appreciate you being present. And so we spend a lot of time talking about different kinds of things. And one subject we talk a lot about is the subject of sin. And, and that's obviously an important subject. And what I hear a lot today from people, and it's probably been this way way before I was born, is the idea when something's brought up about somebody doing something wrong or somebody makes a terrible mistake, maybe even has an affair or something, what do they say? Well, I'm only human. Not, a politician, you know, has uh, you know, has affairs with four or five of his interns. And, well, we all make mistakes, we say. We all make mistakes. We're all, we're only human. I hear this all the time. It's funny how when somebody rescues a child from a river from drowning and they come to him, he doesn't say, well, well, I'm only human after all. What are humans supposed to be like? What are they like? Well, the Bible has a varied picture of this. It presents man, I believe, very differently than is the common understanding of human beings in the world. And I believe the Bible presents human beings in a different way than uh, uh, than, than even religion does and even religious people do because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, among religious people about the nature of man. And so, yes, we're only human, but that's exactly the way God intended us to be. That's all we can ever be, but what does it mean? I want to present this morning a different side of this. I'm not going to present a balanced view of man that includes everything the Bible has to say about man. It'd be a rather long sermon. So I'm going to talk about what God says about man being made in his image this morning. Because that's the first thing that God says about. Of all the things that there is to say about human beings, the first thing that God says is let's make man in our image. Now, that ought to form a foundational basis for understanding human nature and what we're like. And I think it's simply on the part, part of an excuse on the part of a lot of people. Well, that's my animal nature. Uh, I can only take so much because I'm only human. Uh, I'm only a man. And so we use this as an excuse or whatever word you want to put to it. When we fail, when we sin, when we do evil, when we are, when we give in to whatever passion we have at the moment and it turns out badly for us, then we say, I'm only human. You notice we don't say, I'm only human when we give in to our passions and we like the results. 
we don't say I'm only human. We say, well, that's just me because I'm so great. You know, we give our, pat ourselves on the back for that. But when we fail, we say I'm only human. I think this is a misuse, a misunderstanding of what the Bible says. So let's just go to the scriptures, take a look at this. In the book of Genesis in chapter 1, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, created he them. A lot to say in those verses. We talked about them when we studied this in the book of Genesis, how important this scripture is to what we understand in, in, the, in the Bible as to the nature of God and man. And, in, of course, in marriage and the human nature and all those other kinds of things. Now, we can discuss in detail what it means to be made in the image of God, and we could just go that direction in the sermon. That's not really where I'm going this morning. But let me just say this. This means at least that man corresponds to God in some likeness. Man is not God. He wasn't intended to be God. He's made in the image. The word image here is the idea of an icon or a stamp, something that's like a likeness or a a stamped and looks like it and is like it. And I think it has more than the fact of an appearance. I'm not sure that the Bible speaks that, that God has the appearance of man, even though it speaks about the arm of God and the hand of God and the face of God. Those are just descriptions so we can understand uh, that usage. But because God is a spirit, he doesn't have a body. So the image that we're made in is the image that's inside of us, our nature. It doesn't have a lot to do with our physical form, although it may include the interaction of our bodies and our spirits. And there's where the problem is for most of us. It's this interaction between the five senses and the body as it relates to the world and in, in our own insights and the desires that spring from that. We've talked about it many times. We'll probably refer to it in this sermon as we go along, but... The New Testament speaks about the flesh being at war with the spirit. That's been interpreted by a lot of Protestant theologians to, and preachers to be the idea that the flesh is this physical flesh. That's what it's talking about, that our body is somehow evil because it's made out of flesh. we got to get beyond that, and that's why sex is bad and, and chocolate cake is sinful and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's all a complete wrong misunderstanding about the idea of the flesh. The flesh that the Bible is talking about here is man's desire to have his own way. My flesh, my body, my flesh wants what it wants. It sees things in the world by interacting physically with things, and it wants what it wants, and it's going to get what it wants. That's the flesh that has to be crucified. That was Adam and Eve's problem. Satan showed her the tree. She wasn't even thinking about this tree that God said, don't he? He showed it to her. to look at it. Take a look. Look what it's good for. Look what you can do with it. it. It can make you like a god. Look at that tree. And so she went and looked at it, the Bible says. And it wasn't, she wasn't overpowered by her flesh, by her taste buds and her fingers, or her eyes. It was her heart that was overpowered with a desire to be like God and have what she wanted. And so she took it with her hand, of course, and gave it to her husband. And they ate it into their body, but it was really... The flesh here that's being talked about is this desire to have your own way. Now, God, the Bible presents man as a creature both of the earth and of heaven. And the most fundamental thing that I believe God presents about man is God gave man choice. 
he puts before him options and man gets to choose these options. Now, I know that is denied by major religious teachers in history and down to this day that man has a choice. And the fact that man has a choice is now denied by so-called scientists who say that free will is an illusion, that we're really just driven by our genes and by our environment and we don't have any control over our choices. So humans have always liked the idea that they don't have a choice in these matters. Either God made me depraved and I don't have any control over my myself or my nature makes me depraved, evolution makes me depraved and I don't have any choice to do, to rob, steal and kill or whatever because uh, that's just the way my genes and my environment push me to be. We like that idea because it removes our responsibility. But the Bible presents man as a creature with a choice. And we're going to see this in just a moment. And that is also like God. God has a choice in that he can choose to create or not to destroy. He can do all these things. That's his free will. And he, here's the thing that the Bible teaches most importantly about God. God freely chose to love us, as we're going to see. That was his choice. Our choice may be to do what we want, but God's choice is to love us. And we'll see some of the implications of that. But this is the image of God. Now, is this a high view of man or a low view of man? Well, the Bible starts out presenting man in a very high view. He's not just a slug or slime on your bathtub. That's a creature of God, too. It's something God made. He makes slugs and slime and squid and all that stuff. But he, he makes man something different. Of all the things he created, he says, this creature is made in my image. This is meant to show you how important man is. Not to degrade man. Much religious teaching is spent degrading man. Degrading you into thinking you're just some poor soul that can't do anything without God doing everything for you. And you, you don't have any control over yourself and you're just a slug. I think that's a wrong way to present it, what the Bible says. The Bible says you are a noble creature made in God's image and you do have a choice in the matter. You see also in Genesis 9 even, it says, surely, now this is after the fall. People, yeah, I know, Mike, he was made in God's image, but then he fell and he became totally hereditarily depraved. According to John Calvin, the Presbyterian Catechism and others, man cannot, you cannot even think one good thought. There's not one good thing that you can think or do because you're depraved. Totally Every thought, every action, every intention, every desire is depraved and evil. That's what John Calvin and the and Presbyterians and, the, and those who call themselves Calvinists believe about man. Totally, hereditarily depraved. Now the question is, now we can see that some people look like that, maybe seem like, we can see the leaning in this direction. And I believe that man is depraved, but I do not believe he is totally depraved, nor is he hereditarily depraved. The depravity comes because he chooses to have his own way. And so after the fall, how do we see? Well, you say, well, the fall caused this. It's interesting. Read the Bible from front to back and find this phrase, the fall, in there. And tell me what the Bible says about the fall and what it did to man. And you'll be hard pressed to come up with much. But it's a big deal in, in, in religion, the fall. And everything that goes wrong with humans, these questions about the nature of man, though, are, are really not religious. I keep trying to emphasize with you. They're not religious questions. They're, they're just basic 
philosophical questions or human questions that have to be discussed in a broader context than just in a church building. And so it's related what Augustine or John Calvin say about the nature of man as well as what Darwin says about the nature of man. There's a relationship there. And what the common people come to believe about this is also very significant because I think it has a big effect on how, how we think about ourselves, what we think about ourselves, what we end up teaching our children about, about their nature and who they are and how they should act and so forth. Because it matters whether you think you have a choice in your life. There are a lot of, there are a lot of young people today living in poorer sections of our cities who have been taught by their, their, their parents or the people around them and by society at large that they simply can't make it. They're doomed to be criminals or go to prison. Is that love? That, that's a form of prejudice and hatred that is very insidious. And it goes back to human nature, what we think of ourselves. And so when we think we're locked in by our environment, when we think we're locked in by our genetics into a certain pathway in life, we become slaves. And this is what, exactly what the devil wants for you, to enslave you in that kind of mentality. But the Bible is picturing something different. So after the flood, he says to human beings in Genesis 9, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. From the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So man's life, humans are so important that even if an animal kills one of you, I'm going to want you, I want you to put the animal to death. Human life is so important that he institutes capital punishment here. And he says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God, he made man. There it is again. After the flood, God says about man, instead of saying he's totally depraved, his image has been marred, he's, he, he's heretical, he says, nope. He still made the image of God. In fact, so much so that I require the life of man for another man's life. That tells you. It tells you humans are capable of murder, yes. But it also tells you there's a value placed on humans by God. That's a great value. The greatest value placed upon human beings in human life by God. That tells you they're important. The importance of human beings. Not to belittle man. And so you, you see this whole thing un, unforming. In fact, in Psalm 139, uh, you have this famous reading, 139 verse 13 or so, there's a whole psalm about this. For you form, for you, that is God, formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. And it says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, my, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. That unformed substance is the Hebrew word for an embryo. They, that word becomes embryo in our language. This, this passage in Psalm 139 talks about God looking over the life of a human embryo in the mother's womb and calling it something sacred and special. We have no problem just wiping it out and calling it whatever kind of tissue we want. And what we mostly say is we have a right to do that. We have a right to do with this unformed substance whatever we want to do. There it is again. Humans asserting their right 
to do, to have their way, once again, we have this choice to make. Interesting how those words choice get involved in issues like that, isn't it? That's how it's formed because that's what humans are like. That's another part of our as or nature. But this is what God says about human life. Then you have Psalm 8 about this image of God, about the importance of man. The psalmist says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit. Now, modern man looks at the, through these telescopes and they see all this stuff out there and they think, oh, we're so small, we're so insignificant, we don't mean anything. Who can think our life, anything, we're just basically stardust, blowing in the wind, as the song says, we're just stardust, we're nothing. Carl Sagan made a whole career of that idea that in the great cosmos, we are nothing. Well, this, this psalmist, long before Carl Sagan was even thought of, uh, except by God, this psalmist says, Who, what is man that you're mindful of him? What's, what's good is the son of man, that is human beings, that you would ca- to visit means to care for him. And so he says, when I look at the heavens, I see humans look insignificant. They appear to be insignificant, just like Sagan and Asimov and all. I'm probably dating myself, aren't I? Um, Stephen Hawking and all these other people say, we appear insignificant. But here's what the Bible says. For you have made him, you, God, have made him man a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All the sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the pasture of the paths of the seas. Man says man is insignificant when he looks into the heavens. The psalmist says, no, God knows better than that. He's just made a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor. God says humans have glory and honor and he's put him in dominion over all these other works. That's what the Bible says about man. So you've got to balance that. Your understanding of human beings when you see all these wicked things that are going on in the world and you want to have this low picture of human beings. The reason it's important that we should care about morality. All morality is based on the idea that human beings are important and they have nobility and they're not just a bunch of beasts. All all morality that's ever been is based on that notion. The idea that I should love my brothers myself is based on the notion, even as expressed by secular people, that human beings are important. And then when you go a little further into this, you see not only does God express his opinion of human beings in a general way. That all of us are made in the image of God, even after the fall. That all of us are more important than the animals of the of the earth that he puts under our dominion. But he goes on to say that God not only thinks we're important, but he has demonstrated his love for us. Came up in Bible class. Stephen mentioned that in India and other places they worship rivers which has always been true, and, and you see these same rivers destroy and kill indiscriminately because the truth is the gods of the pagans have no love for man. Man is just a thing. In fact, the gods that I read about, read about studying ancient history were basically whimsical with man. They played just games with human beings. They were just toy soldiers, and they, they, they played games with people, and they, they do the same thing. They hurl lightning bolts just for fun. Now, lightning bolts do come from the heavens that God made, but God doesn't hurl them just for fun. 
The Bible has a different view of God's view of man, and that view is love. There's something different. I, I believe this is the reason that the God of the Bible overwhelmed the world after Christ is because of this one element of the nature of Christianity that the pagans could see in the God that the Christians worshipped that they did not see in their own gods, and that's the idea that God loved man. That idea. That idea that the God is a God of love was foreign to the pagans as such. But it was the central idea of Christianity that God loved man. And so you have Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, there it is, we were sinners. Yes, no doubt about that. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There it is. He not only talks about love, he doesn't send us a Hallmark card to talk about love. He actually sent his son to do something. He demonstrated it to us, showed it to us in the sending of his son. Now this tells you that you are not only a creature made in God's image, but you are the object of God's love. Now don't misunderstand, because we're going to get there. That this means that God loves everybody in the sense He's going to save everybody. God loving everybody and God saving everybody are two different things. The Bible's very clear about that too. God will only save those who obey Him in faith. He does not save those who thumb their nose at Him and disobey Him. He will not do that. He, he, he just, He cannot because of His nature and He will not. But the book of He, a book of uh, Ephesians, I should say, emphasizes this part of man, this twofold part of man. That man is a noble creature made in God's image, and yet he is a sinner against God. He refuses to obey God. But it says, though, but you he made alive, you Christians, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. How did you once walk, you Gentiles, you Ephesians? According to the prince, to the course of this world, what does that mean? You walked according to the course of this. Well, you just kind of followed the common culture. If Hollywood said you should like it, you should like it. If the, if the modeling agency said you should wear it, you wore it. If somebody said you should listen to this kind of music, you listened to that kind of music and you enjoyed it. You followed the course of this world. Whatever the world around you, the culture around you said you should do, you just do that. You make sure that you find out each year what's hot and what's not, and you do that. This is how most people live. In one, now, now some of, some people in certain states are slower to get there than others, I might add, but, but we all get there at some point. And like I've said before, we live in that culture so much so that we're like, that, you know, fish don't know they're wet. Fish don't know they're in water. We live in a culture that is so oriented toward pleasing ourselves and, and is opposed to these notions of God's nature that we don't even know how we're being influenced by it at all. I was in, uh, well, it used to be Ace. Now it's Peter's Hardware, where I've been going for close to 30 years almost the other day. And I know all these people in there. I walked in. Some new guy says, can I help you? And the lady goes, he knows where everything is. Because <laughs> I was older. Th- I've been going to that store longer than the guy who said, can I help you? You know, Before he was born, I was going to that store. So unless they do something stupid and move things around, and they, but anyway, I, I was talking, I brought some stuff to the counter and on the radio, on the, they had extra loud for some reason or else my hearing aids were working better than usual. You know, they got a Led Zeppelin song, whole lot of love. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's good. And which I like Led Zeppelin, but see, there's the conflict again, a bunch of godless, immoral pagans. And then there's a song about, now I forgot the name of it. 
It's, it's one of those, I call them rambling man songs. Rambling man um, songs, meaning that I like to leave my sleeping bag rolled up behind your couch so when I come back we can have sex again I'm going to move on again. How many songs are like that? I'm a rambling man. What's the, what does he mean when he says, and I told the lady, I said, there's the rambling man song. Answer, what do you mean? I said, there's hundreds of those songs. You know, she's old, almost old like me. Well, she was probably, uh, she was as old as me, I guess. I hate to say that to her, to her face, but she says, uh, what do you mean? I said, well, a whole generation grew up with all these rambling man songs. I don't know. I said, yeah, that means that you're pretty, you're pretty sweetie and I want to have sex with you, but don't expect me to hang around. I'm a rambling man. I got things to do, man. I'm on my way. Born to be wild. She says, really? That what it means? I said, you're like, I didn't say this, but I thought you're just like my wife. She just listens to the music. She listens to the words. <laughs> Start listening to the words. These are, these are disgusting to me because of what they mean about to women. What they mean is people's attitude toward women are. And the destruction is caused not only in my generation, but now two generations later, the destruction this rambling man stuff is caused and the pain it causes to many of you in this audience. This is the course of the world. This is why we, this is where we are. We follow this course. We just keep following it. And you once lived according to the prince of the powers of the air. Every idea that comes along, you fall for it. The air hears the ideas floating around. Who puts those ideas out in the air? The devil does. That's who. He uses people to do it. But they're all over the place. And then the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, there's a spirit that works in human beings that says, the one thing I won't do is what God wants me to do. The one thing I won't do is conform to any kind of moral code. I'm my own person. I can do what I want. This has been the spirit of human uh, beings in America as long as I've been alive. And it gets worse every day. We could, we're so powerful, we could even change the sex we were born with. And if you're lucky, you could win, you could win Olympic medals in the girls' sports with it all. And it's all supposed to be good. All supposed to be truth. Truth, love, justice, the American way. Hmm. This, he says, you once were. And he says, among whom we, that is the Jews, all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love wherewith he loved us. He saved us, you see. He made us alive together again. All that he said about how people do what they want, but in the end he says, but God. They're the big words in the Bible. They're, those are the two most important words in the Bible. But God. Because of the great love wherewith he loved us. If we were worthless creatures, God could not have loved us. He loved us because he made us to be loved. He made us like himself to be loved. He intended to love us from the beginning. We let him down, but it didn't stop him from continuing to love us. And he knows that when he loves us and we, we, we learn to love him back, that we can be better than we've been. We don't have to walk according to the prince. He knows we don't have to follow the course of this prince of the powers of the air. He knows we, some of us don't even want to, but he said he provides a way to save us. And so, 
He even says in Romans chapter 2, excuse me one second, more technology. They kick off these air conditioners or am I just getting overworked? No, they kick back on. They kick it back on? Yeah, they go back on. Okay, it's just me then. Sweating. Waxing elephants about the the course of this world. He says in Romans 2, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, the law of Moses, by nature do the things of the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. They To show the work of the law written in their hearts and their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves and their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. What this passage is talking about is the fact that human beings not only made in the image of God, but they're able to live righteously. They can live righteously. They can please God. We're told that they can't. There's none righteous, no, not one. That's a statement of fact of what is. That's not a statement of what is possible. People confuse this all the time. When they talk about humans being sinners, they confuse the fact that we all sin with the fact that we all have to sin and can't do anything different than that. We do sin. We sin because of the influence around us. We sin because of our parents, what they teach us. We sin about what we learn all all around the world. We sin because we want to sin. I can tell you something as a teenager, young man. The sins that I committed, the big, bold sins I committed, which I'm ashamed of, I did not do those things because my parents taught me to do them. And my grandparents didn't teach me to do that. My aunts and uncles didn't teach me, nor did anything I heard in church that I went to every week teach me to do those things. And I'm not going to blame any of those people for what I did. I did it because I wanted to. And part of the reason I wanted to is because they told me to do it. That's part of my nature. They told me to do it, and therefore, I didn't want to do it. Anybody else here share that that nature? Maybe I'm the only one. But that's what the Bible says about us. When God puts an X on it, we say, that's the one I want right there. Now, that's because we, we have choice. God made us with this choice, and we think exercising that choice to be opposed to God is some kind of good thing. He wants us to choose the good things, and he gives us more choices of those than we could ever imagine. But we've got to have, you, you know, you can take a nice piece of fish, you can fry it, you can fricassee it, you can bake it, you can saute it, and then some people just got to eat it raw for some reason. You know, got all these choices, I can eat this fish that's perfectly good, and then you just choose to eat it raw. What's wrong with you? Huh? You have to douse into wasabi to get it down. That's the way we are. We have all these choices. And God would bless us with even more if we would choose anything good. And we keep choosing the poor. But he says, these Gentiles did it. Some did. Some still walked righteously even though... I didn't even tell them how to do it. They did it on their own. Now, they were following the nature of God that God put in them, this image of God that God put in them. But that was before the law of Moses. That's a controversial passage. We haven't got time to look at this. But, you know, we can live righteously. Here's another example we've mentioned before. In 2 Peter 2, it mentions Lot, this nephew of Abraham. Abraham and Lot had a lot of flocks. Abraham says, look, our men are fighting, got too much commotion. You, you go one way, I'll go the other. So if you want to go to the valley, you go to the valley. Uh, you, you want me, and I'll, I'll go the other way. 
And Lot looked at that valley, and it's nice and green and beautiful. I said, well, Abraham, I, Uncle Abraham, I think I'll go there. Abraham says, fine, you go there, I'm going to go the other way. So they separated. But he went down to the valley, and Lot ended up living in the city of, of Sodom, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And over time, those places became corrupted. His family, his family became corrupted. People, his, his wife didn't want to leave. His sons and daughters wouldn't leave. And, and there were vile homosexuals and rapists in that city that were trying to hurt even the angels that God sent to them. But the Bible says there that God delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed or vexed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. This man was tormented day by day, seeing what his neighbors were doing all around him, and yet he was what? Righteous. We say, well, I couldn't help it because all my neighbors do this and the people I grew up with do this and the family, and all the media does this. Here's a man who doesn't have to do what's wrong, even living in the worst place of his own generation. He lived in that city. The worst possible place. He doesn't have to do what's wrong. You don't either. Because you're made in the image of God. You need God's help. I'm not saying that. God said, you don't have to do it this way. You know, in Deuteronomy... <clears throat> Humans are exalted because they have the ability to choose to do good. Here's what Joshua said, or Moses said to the people, Deuteronomy 30. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Choose to follow Jehovah. Now, I'm hard-pressed to really, and I, I know I'm not a scholar. I've read some things, but not all, of course. And I'm sure that people have. Having an answer to something and it being a good answer are two different things. Just remember that. But I'm sure there's some kind of answer that you can give to this. But how is it that people who believe the Bible say that man has no choice to do evil? Man is locked into depravity and cannot choose. Since the fall. Well, let me tell you something. Deuteronomy happened a long time after the fall. And the Scriptures say to them... I've set before you life and death. Choose life. Was that a phony choice? According to the Presbyterian Catechism, everything that has happened or ever will happen has already been predetermined by God. And nothing, not one single iota can ever be changed. God's already chosen everything. Every word that comes out of my mouth in the next five minutes, God already chose those words that I'm going to say them before the world began and I can't alter them whatsoever. Well, if that's true, how can a man stand there and tell these people to choose life? Because I set before you life and death. Why did God set life and death before them when they couldn't choose in the first place? It's unbelievable. It makes, it, it makes the Bible meaningless to say those kind of things. Because this is all through the Scriptures. Man is a noble creature that can choose to do good. Does he choose it? Not often. But he can. And I want to summon out of you that notion, I can do what's right. Now, what you need to do that is to obey the gospel of Christ and let the Holy Spirit dwell in you and change you through His Word. Change what you want. Change who you are and enable you to do these things. But you can choose that. To the Calvinists, we don't even choose that. God saved you before the foundation of the world or He condemned you before you were born. 
Some of you would say you've been condemned, you're, you're the damned. Others have been, are the elect and you've been saved and nothing you can do to change that. And so God determined this before the foundation of the world. This is what modern religion teaches. It's a damnable lie. God gave you the ability to make the choice to follow Christ. He will enable you then to follow him and keep following him, but choose life so you can live. In fact, Joshua says, if it seems evil you to serve the Lord, so he fits before them these gods, the gods of the land they're going to go into, the gods of their fathers back in Mesopotamia. And he says, if it seems evil to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. Did they have a choice or not? They did. Whether the gods of our fathers that served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, you know the rest. You have probably have it on your dining room wall. We will serve the Lord. Amen. Me and my house will serve the Lord. We made a choice. Could he make that choice? Well, the Bible says he does. He's a noble man. Joshua is one of the noblest men in the Bible because he stood up as made in God's image and said, I will serve God. I will choose to serve him and I will walk in his ways. This is what is required of you. And so John puts it this way in the New Testament. Being human, yes, involves fighting sin, being weak, making mistakes, making errors, not even knowing how to push the X to fix a problem. Involves all kind of things like that. But being human also means being noble as God's image so that God is willing to give you the power to become one of his children. In John 1, verse 9 through 12, I'll just let's read verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to the Jews... And some versions, I think, I think this is more accurate. Some people say it's the Jews. I think it means he came to his own things. Jesus came to the earth to the people, he, to creatures he had created. He was there in the beginning. John 1 says that earlier in the chapter. He came to his own things, his own creatures, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him even when he came. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those, those who believe in his name. God thinks so much of you as a child made in his image in a natural sense that he gives you the right to become his child in a fallen world. He gives you the right to come and live with him forever. It's what he intended all along. We marred, we marred it, we messed it up. I know that. But I'm not de-emphasizing that. But I am saying that you need to come to God on that basis. to Come back to him as his child, made in his image, to serve him forever. Until doing So we offer you a way to do that, to come to Jesus Christ, to believe on his name. Believing on his name, you need, to, you need to repent of your sins, turn away from this wicked way of living, this living after the flesh. Confess that you believe that Jesus Christ is God's son. And then according to many passages, according to Jesus, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You could be saved by being immersed and buried and come out, come out a new creature. This is God's way of saving you. And the choice is yours if you'll make it. Or you can continue living your way and be destroyed. That's the choice you have. Because God gave you that choice. You're a noble creature. You can stand on your own two feet and do that. You're not helpless before the devil. The Bible even says he gives help to the seed of Abraham. And not even to angels does he give help. He gives help to you. Stand on your own feet and look the devil in the eye and say, not me. Will you do that today? Everything is ready. If you want to become a Christian, come down to the front. We'll baptize you into Christ. You can begin to serve him.
Or if you need to be forgiven of wrongs you've done, we can pray with you about that. God can forgive. You've wronged him, and we can pray with you about that today, and you can make a new start and begin over again. If we can help you, you come right here. Let's stand and sing.